Sometimes being an incredibly talented musician is only half the battle when you want to make it into the music industry. Drummer Tom Breckline's rise to success is the classic tale of hard work, perseverance, and self-promotion. From his big break of landing a steady gig with Chick Corea in 1978, he has gone on to perform with some heavyweights, such as Wayne Shorter, Al Demiola, Jean-Luc Ponty, Robin Ford, Eric Johnson, Christopher Cross, and many others. Over the past eight years, Breckline has toured extensively with Kenny Loggins and has also found a new niche with teaching drums and percussion. Inside MusicCast is pleased to welcome Tom Breckline. Hey Tom, thanks for taking time to hang out with us today. Thanks for having me, man. You picked up a pair of drumsticks, you know, after being influenced by, you know, watching uh, a marching band when you were, I think, about five years old, you know, which yeah. which reminded me yeah. of the, the story of uh, about the, the late Jeff Percaro because he was really into marching bands and he was, you know, that's that's kind of a famous story about him too. But but in your case, wow. you know, you were watching your dad participate in the parade and, and uh, I understand your, yeah. your dad was a veteran, correct? Yeah, he was stationed, I believe he was stationed in the Philippines, he was with the medical corps, and uh, in World War II. So he would march with the veterans of foreign, you know, VFW. Right. Veterans of foreign wars. You know, everybody's got a VFW, and and they always march in the Memorial Day Parade. So there are all these marching bands, you know, high school, junior highs, you yeah. know. The fire department had a marching band, you know, the whole deal. <laughs> so every time they'd come by, I'd get really excited, you know. I mean, you know, he's, everybody's taller than you anyway, and everything's bigger than you anyway, you know. So. Right. It leaves quite an impression, plus the sound. Even the kids that couldn't play in time, it still sounded good. <laughs> yeah, it was all. It was. It, it was like it was basic. It was definitely like, you know, you, as a kid, you'd always lay for the Memorial Day Parade. You know. Yeah. That was really that. That was my real first hit of music. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, big time drumming and 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 everything else. You know. You know, uh, just music. Period. You know. Yeah. Well, you you grew up in uh, in the '60s, of course, during uh, you know the whole Beatlemania thing, and 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 they, of course, the Beatles' incredible influence on the American music landscape, and and Ringo Starr was also a really big influence on you, right? Yeah, I first saw him on the the Beatles on the Jack Parr show. It was a film from England that Jack Parr sent over. You couldn't really see him, but when they hit the Ed Sullivan show, yeah, it was just. I mean, they were just terrific. You know. Yeah. And, of course, my two older sisters were older than I was, so they were going nuts. They took pictures of the TV tube <laughs> to see if you could get a picture of it. So when they, so when, when, they, when the photos came back, all there was was the dirt that was on the screen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so as, you know, the youngest, you know, the little bratty brother, you know, I was like, you know, I'd start laughing at him. <laughs> that didn't go over well, but, you know. <laughs> but that was your job. Yeah, but they bought all the records. My sister, uh, my oldest sister, Joan, she she bought all the cool records. Mm-hmm. So she bought all the Beatles records, the Four Tops, the Temptations, yep. you know, and then later on, Sly and the Family Stone, and you know, the Supremes. Uh, 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 the, what, did I say the Four Tops? I mean, uh, Sam Cooke. Yeah, you know. I didn't, I mean, they were just cool records. I didn't know they had really smoking rhythm sections on it you know, as a kid, you know. So, That's right. <laughs> thanks to my sister Joan, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, that was the first, you know, education. Plus, you bought all the Beatles records, of course, you know. Exactly. So you got to put Joan in there as an influence, too. Oh, absolutely. My, <laughs> my oldest sister Joan. Absolutely. Without, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, there's only one, this sounds like the classic, like, you know, we walked, I walked five miles to school every day, but... 
there was only one record player in the house, and that was my sister's record player, <laughs> yeah. which was upstairs, you know. <laughs> so most of the time off limits, but you could always sit on the bottom stair, the staircase, yep. and listen. Mm-hmm. It was loud enough, you know. Exactly. And then she'd let me come upstairs and play her records, and of course, when she wasn't home, I'd sneak upstairs and yeah, of course. play her records. <laughs> I was old enough to buy records, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Hey, so Rick uh, mentioned a couple seconds ago about um, you know Ringo Starr, and of course, and there, there's two areas of distinction regarding the opinion of his playing. One is the the guys that think that he's really uh, he's really subpar. They're, they don't know much music, but there's those that think that he's he's a really great drummer, and yeah. uh, at least those who have performed with him. What's so? What's your take on his style, and how did that well, impact you? You know, Ringo's a bad mother father. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if, again, if you listen to those BBC records, what he's playing, man, I mean, especially Can't Buy Me Love is one of the tracks that really stood out for me. Yeah. You know, what it, when, when, those, when those BBC sessions came out, you know. I mean, he's killing. And also, I mean, just when the, when the original records came out, you listen to those records, he's got a pocket, man, you know. He's, he's, you know it's Ringo, you know? Yeah, right, right. The Ringo fills and whatever, you know what I mean? The whole ball of wax, you know? Yeah. It's like the same thing. When you hear Bar- Bernard Purdy play, you know it's him, you right. know? I mean, Earl Palmer and that and the like, you know? I mean, I was talking about Roger Hawkins with the Muscle Shoals. Yeah. You know, and, you know uh, Charlie Watts. Of course, Roger Hawkins was way later on, but, you know, yeah. not way mm-hmm. later on. Yeah, he, he was on all those Aretha Franklin hits, Roger Hawkins. Well, it's funny, funny you mentioned uh, Bernard Purdy, because uh, you know there was that s- story that s- supposedly oh, released, yeah, about him, about him, you know, sneaking into the I studio. No, and I'm not saying anything. Yeah, you right. Know, I respect the <laughs> We we interviewed him once, and he said, you know, I he we were going to ask him about it, and I don't think I got three words into my question, and he <laughs> knew what I was going to ask, and he cut me off. Right, and he goes, because right, everybody was asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey. I'm Switzerland in this, you know, neutral. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We respect that. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. You know, yeah. like, uh, what is it? Fifth Amendment. Right. <laughs> I'd hear these guys when I was younger, and I didn't know who they were. They just played the drums to me. You know, I mean, for me, you know, I just saw this little like, you know, and then you find out who they are. I remember sitting in front of the TV set. I couldn't. Have, I was probably about nine or ten. And uh, Max Roach was on PBS doing a little thing all by himself. Uh-huh. And I sat in front of him and I said, man, this guy's really good, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. But not knowing who he was, yeah. you know? He was phenomenal. Plus, in the 60s, you know, radio was pretty eclectic right. back then. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you had your little transistor radio with your earpiece and you'd hear folk music and then you'd hear R&B and then you'd hear some... I don't want to say stupid. Well, I already said it, didn't I? Anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, you got a whole thing, you know, yeah. which which was different, which is much different now. You know, I don't know where radio is at. You know, yeah, right. You know, you were really motivated, you know, at an early age in regard to studying and practicing, you know, percussion and music in general. And, and in fact, you know, if I understand it right, you took private lessons at the discretion of your middle school teacher because he could see that, you know, you were at a much higher level than some of the other students. So tell us about that desire when it came to learning drums. Was this all well, coming from you or were your parents driving you? 
Do your parents have anything? No, it was coming from me. Yeah, okay. Surprisingly, when I tell the story, so I go like, whoa, you know? Uh, I was... I was nine. I think I was nine. Uh, either, yeah, nine. And when you're in fourth grade, uh, at least when I was in school, that's when you start taking band, third, fourth grade, around there, eight or nine. Mm-hmm. You know, you get, so I wanted to get in the band program. And I remember talking to my mother. I said, you know, I need to get in the band program. And I need to take lessons because I need to learn how to read. <laughs> that's what I told her. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, read rhythms and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, I, I took, I took classes with everybody else, you know, because you had band on Monday and Wednesdays or something, you know, yeah. a lot of you had a band practice. And, uh, this is like from first, uh, well, th- third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And then we had middle school, which was seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then of course, uh, high school, 10, 11, 12. So we took, um, you know, group lessons. And then they had summer programs, which was great, you know. And I learned how to read rhythms and stuff like that and read some music. And in junior high, you know, the group lessons started uh, and uh, again. And I remember, uh, I remember the, the high school band teacher, I mean the high school, the junior high band teachers, he was trumpet player. And he was... He was a great guy. He was he was really he was kind of rough around the edges, and you, you know you're kind of scared of him. But he was a really cool guy. And anyway, he comes up to me and he goes, "I'm going to mention him. You know, he'll probably kill me if he hears this." Name is Kenny Seppi, great guy, great educator. Uh-huh. Really, I mean, you need somebody like that yeah. in a school. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be a little rough, right? You know, just right in there. I mean, not like scary. You know. Right, maybe a little and, military, right? Not like that. The, the character portrayed in Whiplash, which we all know that always happens. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, did, you, um, did you ever bleed all over your drums? Yeah, you bleed all over your drums. You learn how to play real fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do, folks. That's exactly what you do. That's what the education system, <laughs> education is all about: hard and fast. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, so, <laughs> back to the question. Right. Yeah, your hands bleed. I don't think I've ever seen anybody's hands bleed. <laughs> I, may, I may be wrong. So anyway, after the group lesson, he comes up to me and he goes, um, Breckline, get over here. He goes, I go, what? He says, you sight read that lesson, didn't you? I said, uh, well, did I play it right? He goes, yeah, you played it great. You sight read it, right? I go, yeah. Well, yeah. He goes, oh, actually, he said, no, you didn't practice, did you? I said, what do you mean? I played it right. <laughs> and he, said, he said, yeah, you did, but you were sight reading it, weren't you? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you were sight reading it. So I go, yeah, I was sight reading He goes, he says, you're going to take private lessons. And I said, I don't want to take private lessons. And he goes, he goes, you take private lessons or you're out of the band. I go, okay, I'm out of the band. And he goes, why don't you want to take private lessons? I said, well, that's a snobbed out thing. I want to be with the other guys. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he takes me aside and says, look, if you take private lessons, you're not going to be out of the bay. You just take private lessons. This guy's really good. His name is John O'Reilly. Not John Riley, John O'Reilly. He, he, later on, he worked at Alfred, and he, he published a really great band method. Great, great teacher. He taught me great basics. So for four bucks, every Tuesday... I took a half an hour lesson with John O'Reilly, and we learned everything from drum set to snare drum, xylophone, oh yeah, rock, jazz, whatever. 
in one half hour. He says, okay, you play that for me. Okay, I play that for me. Boom. Okay, that's good. Boom. That's good. Okay. Okay. Do set pages seven, eight, nine here, and then this one, three, six, blah, 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 you know, you know, any RD book. Okay, you play that, blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, cool. You know, this is when I was in junior high. So in a half an hour, we'd do it. It was great. It was, it was fantastic. At your, at your house. Jesus. And uh, I learned a lot in those, in those, uh, from, from junior high till I graduated high school. Wow. You know? Yeah. To finish the story, he goes, oh yeah, also, come here. And he had a, a Ludwig, uh, a timpani book. And, uh, he hands me the timpani book and he gives me a pair of timpani. He goes, come here. And he, I go into the percussion closet, and there's a pair of timpani there. He goes, play Saturday Night at the Movies. <laughs> and, of course, I, I have to preface that with Saturday Night at the Movies before cable. <laughs> you know, he had Monday Night at the Movies, Tuesday Night at the Movies, Wednesday Night at the Movies. That, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it always had this timpani roll, like, boom, 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 like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So he says, play Saturday Night at the Movies. So I go, boom, 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 boom. He goes... Okay, Here's, he gives me a pitch pipe. He goes, can you tune that? So I tuned it to a B flat, and I tuned the other one to an E. And he goes, great. He goes, and he gives me the book. He goes, learn that. He goes, you're also in the eighth grade orchestra. This is when I was in seventh grade. So, so I was in demand, man, when I was like 12 years old, you know? <laughs> was that a... Up, man. That's awesome. Were you getting a uh, union? <laughs> you can't get that much for free. <laughs> I was work- it was working for free, man. I was working for free. Oh, know. so you weren't getting union so- scale for that? <laughs> That's, <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> That's hilarious. It was great. It was really great. And then, you know, went to the high school. In the high school, it was almost like baseball, you know, or football, you know, that the, the high school music teachers were looking at the guys in the two junior highs. You know, one junior high was uh, it was Woodland, where I went to, and then the other one was, uh, shoot, what was it called? Oh, Meadowbrook. Yeah. It was Meadowbrook Junior High, you know, so it, because the town was, town was pretty big, you know. So, anyway, so they'd be looking at who's coming up, because, you know, they're losing seniors, and they want, you know. So in, in East Meadow High School, which is where I went to, the chairman was, his name is Bill Katz, and... He had a curriculum. It was it was great. I mean, they had a great staff there. You know, about four or five guys in the music department there. You know, there were three choirs, three uh-huh. orchestras, wow, three wind ensembles, three jazz ensembles, wow. and we started the first uh, improvisation class where this teacher by the name of Mike Carubia started. And you know, and ev- on everybody's lunch hour, we'd go in and we'd play standards, quartet, quintet, septet, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, it was really cool. And then they also had Theory 1, Theory 2, uh, and Independent Study. Yeah. You know? I mean, but this is not a private school. It's a public school. And these guys... That's amazing. These guys really made it happen. And there were A, B, and C groups of each and every one of them. And you had to audition every year to keep your seat. Yeah. And sometimes during the course of the year. So you couldn't sit on your laurels. I mean, you had to be like kicking some butt, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and the jazz ensemble met every Friday after school. And uh, a good bulk of, of what I know now is from, from that, you know? Yeah. And uh, it, it was just 
you know, we'd go on the road. Well, I mean, we'd go on the road. We'd play maybe two or three gigs on the road, you know. And but we played like you know the of course the the fall the spring concert and all that and and then we'd chip in and we we would record a record every year, mm-hmm. and it was just it was great. I mean, what a what a great way to get uh, trained up for that kind of thing. You know? I know. Hey, you you know we talked about your influences. We, we talked about your influences of the bands and that type of stuff that were really influencing you, and you were listening to them and. But particularly great jazz drummers like you know Steve Gadd and you know you mentioned Bernard Purdue and Chris Parkers and others and but Gadd was a pretty heavy influencer to you. What, what was what, what is it about Steve Gadd's approach to drums? You know that that really well, connects that, with well, you. It was that he could play the, the the thing that really got me was he could play every pretty much any style of music, mm-hmm. but he played it like him. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know it was him, and plus, I mean, that doesn't take away the fact that he doesn't that he knows the history, and he could probably play like anybody that you mention. You'd mention, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's that. That's just uh, that's just a given, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's like Haley's comet. Nobody <laughs> comes around like that in another seventy-five or a hundred years. You right. know, mm-hmm. he's a freak. <laughs> And I mean, you know, the the comp the compliment version of freak, you know. Yeah, exactly. The first time I heard him was on a Jackie Kane Royal Crow a uh, Roy Royal Crow Roy Crow record called The Wilder Alias. A friend of mine hit me to it. You know, he says you got to hear this guy, and I'm thinking, oh wow. When I had been listening to Billy Cobham and Tony Williams and all that, and and saying, okay, how could this guy be just as good or or in that league, you know? So I hear this record, I'm going. Okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he's playing like bebop, you know, but in his own way. In other words, he's putting it into a more modern vein, you know. Yeah, and he all those CTI records, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, like that, then uh, a buddy of mine, we had a band together, and uh, I bring this record over, and I said, "Check this out." He goes, "Oh yeah, check this out," and it's Chick Corea's Leprechaun, and the first thing he puts on is Night Sprite. <laughs> and I'm going, I just looked at the record I had, and I just went, want to trade? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, man, I mean, it was, like, ridiculous. And then after that, to make matters worse, then he plays the, fr- the the second cut on the record, which is called Lenore, which has such a great rhythm and groove to it, you know? And it's it's a signature Steve Gadd groove, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like, you should, have you heard it? It's been a long time, but I I know that record, yeah. It just chugs along. I mean, it's just, it's it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's it's just this thing that just goes right underneath what Chick's playing. And I'm sure, I mean, they did a duet, and then obviously you can hear it, because he puts a Moog bass on it later on, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Night Sprite. Then he listens to the whole record, and it's beautifully played, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, exactly. And, um... So and that's funny that this all happened in the space of one week, right? Okay. To make matters worse, I remember I had a break. You know, I had two classes in the morning at Nassau, and it was pretty close to where I lived. You know, so I drove home to have lunch because I didn't have it. I don't think I think I was done for the day, and I was going to practice or yeah. do something. And I turn on the TV, and it's one of those. You know, everybody has the local stations. Well, in New York. You had uh, one of them was Channel Five. That's WPIX, right? Okay. And they usually have reruns of shows 
the old shows. And one of well, this is the Mickey Mouse Club, right? <laughs> so I turn on the thing. This happened the same week. It was weird. I turn on the turn on the TV. There's the Mickey Mouse Club, and of course the host is Jimmy Dodd, right? Yep. Uh-huh. And there's this kid tap dancing. I go, oh wow. That kid can really tap dance. Holy crap. How old? He's got to be like seven or eight years old or something, right? And then he gets on a set of drums and he starts playing some Dixieland type stuff. Yeah. I'm going, holy crap, listen to that kid play, right? Yeah. So he finishes and I'm turning around to eat something and then you hear Jimmy Dodd say, all right, let's hear it for a little Stevie Gadd. And I went, wow. You got to be kidding me! <laughs> you know, and of course you could probably see that footage on YouTube now. You yeah. have to look for that. That's but, cool. Uh, it, it was amazing, and I was like, "How weird is that?" You know? Yeah. And and then I saw the first time I saw him was at the bottom line playing with stuff, Jeez. him and Chris Parker. Wow! And uh, being the geek that I am, the gear the gear geek that I am, I could tell you exactly what he was playing on. He was playing on a... T- I'm going to tell you anyway. You don't even have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a white Gretsch bass drum 20... It was a white Gretsch drum. It was a white Gretsch bass drum 20 inches, you know, you know, nothing on the front. Okay. The guy he had a five and a half supersonic brass... I think it was a brass uh, Ludwig snare drum. He had the spun fiberglass uh, concert toms, 10-12, with bottoms on it. And then, uh, uh, and then, uh, 13, 14, you know, hanging toms, you know, I'm sure they were the, they were concert toms at that time, you know, they, you know, but I'm sure, pretty sure they were spun fiberglass too, with the bottoms on it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd never seen somebody play with a 10 inch tom as their first tom. Okay. And then he had the swivelmatic hardware, Roger's swivelmatic hardware on the bass drum but not side by side. They were like in line with each other. You know what I mean? Okay. You know, it was, it was Roger Swivematic hardware. And, and he had, uh, he had the two 18 inch K's they used and, uh, set of 14 inch K high hats and then a pearl high hat with, uh, the external springs te- tension on the side. How's that? Huh? Jeez, <laughs> man. And then, and then two Ludwig, you know, thin stands and, and then later on, Chris Parker had cracked one of his ride symbols. I'm just that spec. Uh, that's I'm guessing because I remember that symbol. I think symbol with rivets on it on the top on the top of that ride symbol because that ride symbol was cracked. Okay. And that's the first stacked symbol I've ever seen anybody play on. Really? This was like probably the same year. You know. Yeah. I think it was Chris's symbol. I remember it had the same marking underneath the underneath the ride, you know, and it was cracked. But it sure sounded good when he played it. Interesting. You know? Well. And so, anyway, getting back to the bottom line, I saw he was, like, right in near the piano of Richard T., and Chris would be in the middle. And, of course, Gordon Edwards would be in the front. And then you had Eric Gale on the side, and then Richard T. was, like, on the left-hand side of the stage, when, as you're looking at the stage. What a team. And then, of course... uh uh, Eric Yale, Cornell Dupree was sitting down on the sitting down on his amp with a pipe in his mouth, and, you know. And then Gordon Edwards was like front in the band, you know, of course. <laughs> and they sounded so good. I used to when they were always there. When they were there, I used to buy two tickets, you know, first yeah. second show. They'd be there for two nights, 
spent my money on four tickets, be in the same place, get there early, park right across the street because it was this empty dirt lot. Yeah. Now it's all taken up by NYU and stuff like that, you know, but... But it was just great, you know. That's amazing. Uh, you know, that's amazing. You're telling us these. And in my mind, we're just trying to picture this whole, you know, this set with Eric Gale and there's Richard T. I mean, it just, you know, it, it just, um, you know, it, it just sort of, you know, points us to, you know, you know, you, you graduated from Hofstra, okay? You were there a couple of years. Sorry, yeah, no, I didn't graduate from Hofstra. Okay. I left. Okay, you left. To go on the road with Chick. Gotcha. How did that? Uh, didn't you audition for Chick? Tell us the story. What? What? How did you connect with Chick? Um, how did it really happen? I mean, did he find you, or did you request an audition? What was? What well, was? Uh, I took. You know, I wanted to learn how to play uh, trio jazz. Uh huh. So instead of te- I was, it was an experiment. I figured, I okay, instead of taking lessons from a drummer, I figured I'd take lessons from a piano player, from piano trio. What would they like to hear? What do they want? What kind of records? So I took lessons from Mike Garson, hmm. who was a great piano player and played with David Bowie and you know the like, you know. And he but he also had his own jazz groups. So I go over his house every day, and I had no idea he knew Chick at the time. Mm-hmm. I had no idea, but but that wasn't why I was taking lessons from him. I took lessons from him because I just wanted to know because. There were some really great jazz musicians on Long Island. I'll get to I'll get to the answer to your question. I don't okay. want to go off on sure. these tangents, you sure. know. But uh, but there was this guy Gary Smolian, another guy named Gary Haas, and and, and uh, another guy who you should interview. His name is Jeff Hirschfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Hmm. But when he was eighteen, he was playing like Philly Joe, and he was playing like Roy Haynes. He could play brushes like Philly Joe, Joe, like at nineteen, twenty years old. Now. Jeez, I mean, he was just ridiculous. You know, so these guys would play at Sonny's place, right? These twenty-year-old guys, nineteen, eighteen, you know, and be playing straight ahead and, and bebop like, I mean, unbelievably. Gary Smolian now plays; uh, he's one of the top Barry players in New York City. You know, uh, uh, Jeff has played with Mose Allison and and others. You know, I, and he's he's amazing. You should check him out. Definitely, yeah. And then cool. Gary, Gary's producing in New York right now, bass player. Mm-hmm. And it was great piano player Joe Zappa. And but, but also sometimes Mike would would play with the band. So anyway, I'm taking lessons with Mike, and we're you know we're rolling along. You know, just get my drum set. We set up duo kind of a duo for trio, huh? And then uh, one day, Mike buys a synthesizer. And the, I was just about to leave, and the synthesizer came in. All right, because see, Tom, would you stick around and play a little bit? You know, I want to hear how the synthesizer works. It was a, it was one of the first. Uh, the Roland. Anyway, it was a Roland. Let's say it was a Roland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, he put on top of the piano, and then we started playing this fusionesque type music, you know, and sort of pseudo Latin type stuff. So I knew how to do that, I, pretty good. You know, because that's what I'd been listening to. You know, Fusion was, you know, all over the place at that time. So I start playing, and he looked at me, he goes, I didn't know you could play like that, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and I said, well, I'm not here to play like that. I'm here to learn this, you know. So, make a long story short, which is already long, <laughs> he recommended me to check. 
He says, what you should do is you should make a demo. So I did a demo, which me and my buddy paid for, and I figured, you know, it was like twofold. We were going to have a band together and try and get gigs around town. So we had like a little audition-type tape or something. Yeah. And the second was to send it to Chick. Well, that never went to Chick. What went to Chick was this jam that Mike and I did in his living room with the boombox recording the jam. <laughs> okay. And uh, I remember uh, getting a call from Chick's management saying, you know, he's going to be, no, yeah, he's going to be in the area uh, at this certain time. He says he would, like, he would like to check you out. And I said, holy crap. So we set it up at Mike's house because they were buddies, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I auditioned with three bass players. I auditioned with Ken Smith, of the, like Ken Smith bass. Yep. Okay. Anthony Jackson. Yeah. Jeez. And Rick Laird. Okay. Six hours. And it was all, it was all the stuff from the Friends record, which was still in the can. It wasn't, it, I don't think it was mixed yet. And uh, what was just about to be released, which was the Mad Hatter record. And Mike was really great. He, he, he got a, a test pressing of Mad Hatter. And he said, just check this out. So, you, you know, whatever. So I checked it out. Of course, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the first tune that I auditioned on was the One Step, which is off the Friends record. Okay. And it's very, here I am ready to play all these freaking notes and stuff. And it's just a simple, simple tune. I don't know if you, have you heard it? Have you heard the One Step? Yeah. Yep. It goes, da 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 Right, right. da 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 Da, 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 mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, so we're playing that. I'm going, okay, play that. So then the second thing was the uh, the, the middle section of uh, the tune Cappuccino on that record, which is that whatever. You don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> but anyway, it's that middle part where, you know, it's sort of like Elvin S, you know. Right, right, right. Okay. And so I did that. And I, I think I did okay. And then we did the vamp section to Dear Alice, which is just a basic, you know, do do and we jammed on that. So I did that for about six hours, you know, with all these bass, with these three bass players that were coming in. Yeah, I got to meet Anthony Jackson for the first time. You know, I didn't know what Anthony looked like or whatever. You know, I thought he was going to be like this, you know, bad dude coming in. And I was going like, oh, great. You know, I was kind of freaked out. <laughs> so Anthony walks in and he, and he's, you know, he was really a, a, a really, and still is a really nice guy. And he, he just kind of went up to me and he, he just went, he says, Hi, Tom, do you live in a house or an apartment? And I went, Oh, I live in a house. I still, you know, that's great because I find it hard to practice in an apartment sometimes, you know. And, and he was so nice, you know. So I, so then we played together. It was like a dream, you know, because he was one of my heroes, you know. I thought maybe what he was getting at, he was he was going to ask you if he can if you had like an extra room or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know Ken Smith, and that was fun too. And then Rick Laird, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah. You know, Rick Laird for the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah. Holy crap, you know. So at the end of the day, I didn't think I had I didn't think I had the gig, you know. I figured okay. Yeah. And I said, well, thanks, Chick, for hearing me play. And he goes, he goes. He goes, thanks, Tom. He goes, you know, I'll talk to you soon. And I figured, so I hung on to that, talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Uh-huh. And so, um, so I'm still going to Hofstra, so I'm cutting class. I'm cutting, because I was going to go for music education. 
And, uh, you know, to have something to quote-unquote fall back on, you know, which is another story. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get into that. So uh, I'm cutting class, and it was a string class to learn how to play violin. <laughs> and it was my girlfriend. So my mother knew where I was. So she calls me up to the girlfriend, and she goes, he goes, you better get your, your your tail over here right now. He goes, Chick Corea's office just called, and uh, Chick and Herbie are playing at Carnegie Hall. That was the first duet tour that they did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Chick Corea and Herbie are playing at Carnegie Hall. You better get down there. The management has tickets for you. Wow. Said, Holy crap. So I go down there. I get the, bu- you know, sitting in the box seat, hanging out with management, hanging out. And see, I see all my jazz idols there, you know. I mean, I mean everybody was there. And and I'm freaking out, and nobody's telling me anything. So I hung out with him. He asked me to hang out again the second day, and uh, nobody's telling me anything. So this is the second gig at Carnegie Hall, and the intermission, I go backstage, and he goes, uh, and Chick comes up, he goes, Hey, Tommy, uh, can you get your drums on, uh, go back to Long Island, get your drums, and go to this address and we'll play again? I said, Sure. So I drove all the way back. I drove from Manhattan back to East Meadow, loaded my drums in the back of the car, boom, back into Manhattan, and meet Chick at that address. Well, Chick, he's got all the keyboards that, you know, Fender Rhodes and acoustic pianos there, of course. And, and uh, there's Jeff Berlin. And they're going <laughs> to audition Jeff Berlin. They're going to audition me again. Wow. So we play, uh, I think we played the one step. And then we played uh, a tune called, um, we played Cappuccino, we played Sicily. Hmm. And the coda of Sicily, uh, that, that's the deal breaker, because there's a lick there, you know, at the mm-hmm. end. So we play that, and of course, Jeff plays it perfectly, you know. And so we finish, and, you know, nobody said anything, right? So I say, packing up my stuff, and I... I say goodbye to Chick. He goes, he goes, Tommy. I'll talk to you in about ten days. I'm gonna, I'll be home, and I just got, you know, these, these gigs to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll call you in about ten days. I said okay, and I figured, oh, well, I they gave it a good go, you know. It's fine, you know. I didn't think I actually played that well, you know. I remember February 10th at 10 o'clock, he called me. I mean, I was shoveling snow all day, and of course, those were the days we didn't have call waiting. So my sisters were still in the house, too, as well as me. And I said, look, you guys. I said, you get any calls, make it short. <laughs> I'm expecting a call, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it was a blizzard that day. I remember shoveling snow three times. I'd shovel it, more snow. Shovel it. Of course, I'm freaking out because I'm, like, phone watching, you know. So at, uh, on February 10th at 10 o'clock at night, the phone rings. And it's Chick. I figured he's going to say, all right, man, well, Better luck next time, or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. So, but instead, he said, uh, "You know, he said, hey, Tommy, it's Chick.' I go, yeah, hey, Chick.' He goes, uh, so listen, uh, why don't you come on the road with me?' And so I kind of, you know, took a deep breath. I didn't say anything, you know. He goes, uh-huh. listen, um, I want you to listen to a few things. I want you to listen to In a Silent Way. I want, no, no, I want you to listen to Love Supreme, and I want you to listen to some Tito Puente records and Eddie Palmieri. I said, okay, cool. He goes, uh, uh, the tour manager will call you, uh, call you uh, uh, after we're done and uh, discuss everything else, you know. Wow. I said, cool. So then I hung up the phone, and 
I screamed like any <laughs> normal person would yeah. do. Went nuts, you know. Hey, and, Tom, uh, what what year is this, by the way? When, when was this? Nineteen seventy-eight. Okay, eight. Okay, yeah. Nineteen seventy-eight. So that was February tenth, and we started in March. Okay. Started rehearsing in March. Yeah. I think it was March thirteenth, March twelfth, March thirteenth, and then mm-hmm. we went on the road at the end of March. We rehearsed for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the thirteen-piece band, and we did uh, we did everything from the acoustic return to forever to the electric return to forever. Oh my God! Uh, to the solo records, we did mm-hmm. we we did pretty much most of Leprechaun, yeah. even Leprechaun's Dream, the epic thing in the at the end. Mm-hmm. So we already had uh, ready to go. We had Spanish Fantasies one, two, and three if we needed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the, those are hefty pieces of music. You know? Oh, yeah. And um, so it was definitely trial by fire, you know. I was flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah. You know, I really was. <laughs> yeah. I swear to God, I don't even know how I got through that, but mm-hmm. I did, you know. But I, I think that worked, you know. Yeah, definitely. For me, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And because you, you, the necessity level brings up, you know, doesn't matter if you're not ready, or, you know, ready or not ready. You better. It's it's just all a question of you better be ready. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. no doubt. There's no. Am I ready? Am I not ready? It's like you're ready whether you like it or not. You yeah. know. Well, hey Tom, you know, with all this talk about Chick, um, I think it's only fair that we pause for a few minutes and let's check out some of your work with Chick. Let's go back to uh, 1980 and check out a track from Chick's album called "The Tap" that you performed on, titled "The Slide." And this is from our guest today, Tom Breckline, on Inside Music Cast.
So you went out on the road with with Chick for a couple of years, but I think in in 1980 uh, you ended up moving out to L.A. You know, Chick had moved out there, and and uh, and then yeah. you know, as it turns out, you know, moving out there was a great move for you, and, and the doors opened. Uh, they seemed to open up to new opportunities. But I'm yeah. just curious about you know, I, obviously you had this connection with Chick, but how quickly did other opportunities open up for you? I mean, did you have to beat on some doors, you know, first yeah. since you were new, oh, yeah. the new guy on the block, You're or new in town? You're new in yeah. town. Yeah. Nobody I was just wondering if they're there, so you got to let people know you're there. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, mm-hmm. and then eventually, um, I mean, I was still touring with Chick. Thank goodness, you know, up until the at the beginning of '83. Mm-hmm. You know, '82, uh, '83. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I started playing with Joe Farrell, mm-hmm. and then uh, I I did some uh, I subbed for Tommy Taylor on Christopher Cross's gig. I, okay, yeah. And then you start doing some studio work. You start doing these. There used to be these cash dates, um, and you know the uh, Latin uh, the uh, Latin American market pops. There was a pop scene uh, going on there, yeah. and they'd hire you. You get paid cash, you know, but you'd end up doing you like doing an album a day, yeah. which was great training and got paid for it too. Mm-hmm. No, no, you know, it was one time I did three records in one day. I didn't even know it. I was so <laughs> I was so pie-eyed i said so we done with this record and the producer <laughs> the producer looked at me and goes what do you mean this record you just did three i went oh okay you know that's funny so i must be on the top 10 in south america and in mexico exactly. <laughs> i'm on the big hits you know but i mean we did that and also you play like you play jazz gigs. You play gigs. You know, like a lot of great players out here, like Mike Miller. I don't know if you know who he is. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah. He's a great player. He played with Gino Vanelli, and yeah. now he's out playing with Bob Skaggs. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, and then you know, uh, this trumpet player Al Vizzuti. I hope you should know him. He's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and Bunny Brunell had a, a band out here. Mm-hmm. Al helped me a lot. Get a lot. Uh, helped me a lot with getting work out here. Yeah. You know, you, you become you become a part of the you, you get in communication with the community. You know, like anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. so but you gotta let people know you're there. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't be sitting down. You know. Okay, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, really. I worked with Chikoria. I'm like uh, I'm Mr. Big Shot. You know, I ain't yeah, gonna right. work. <laughs> you know. <laughs> hey, Rob Robin Ford. How did you connect with him in '88? Tell us how uh, how that happened. Uh, well, it, it, it's pretty funny. I, I, out of the Christopher Cross gig where I subbed for Tommy Taylor, mm-hmm. the tour manager called me up and uh, he said, listen, I have a friend that would like to jam with some people. He's here out in L.A. and would like to jam with some people. Mm-hmm. So I said, what's your friend's name? He says, Eric Johnson. And I said, what does he play? <laughs> he plays guitar. Okay. <laughs> so... So I said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Now, where do I go? So he gave me the address, you know, and I took my drums. I went in there, you know, and there's this wall of amps, you know, and uh, there's Eric. And so Roscoe Beck comes walking in. He had his stuff, you know, and I introduced myself. He introduced myself, you know. Uh, he introduced himself, you know. And I think we worked on the Jennifer Warren's, uh, Jennifer Warren's record together. He okay. was there, and uh, which became The Hunter, which was basically extra tracks from this famous Blue Raincoat record that she did. Okay. Anyway, yeah. um, 
so Roscoe and I hit it off, you know. You know, he said, let me get your number, you know, because uh, you know, I played with Robin Ford. Yeah. And he said, we usually play, they used to play at a place called My Place in Santa Monica. Okay. And it was usually Russell Ferrante, Vinny Caliuta, him, and I mean, uh, Roscoe and Robin, you know. Mm-hmm. And they'd play, and sometimes the chairs would revolve, so it would be fine. So they were always looking for players. So he said to me, he said, uh, he said, listen, you know, we usually have Vinny playing, but if Vinny can't make it, would you like to, would you like to play with us? I said, I said yeah, absolutely. That started it, really. Yeah. And then uh, what happened was uh, I was called by this guy, Kazuma Matsui, who's a producer, and saying, you know, you were recommended by Roscoe Beck, and I'm doing this project. Would you like to play on this? I said, yeah, sure. You know, it's, 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 only, it's a live gig. But it happened to be in the band behind th- these Japanese artists was, Roscoe and Russell Ferrante and Robin, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we rehearsed at this recording studio. We are rehearsing, and then Robin comes up to me, and he says the same thing Roscoe said to me. He goes, you know, listen, usually Vinny plays with us, but, uh, you know, if he's out of town and he can't do it, would you, would you be the doing it? I said, absolutely. <laughs> it was almost like yeah. the same the carbon copy. Of <laughs> Very the, ironic, yeah. <laughs> first time I met uh, Ross, you know? Yeah. So... <laughs> so I learned the tunes, and lo and behold, about oh, two weeks later, Robin called me. He goes, hey, listen, we got a gig at my place. That's the name of the club. Right. Uh, Friday and Saturday. Can you do it? I said, absolutely, you know. So I learned the tunes, and, and we had a blast. And I think the thing that sealed the deal with me coming back and playing more often was, uh, I think it was the end of the second night, and Roscoe turns around to me and looks at me and goes, Texas Double Shuffle. I'm going, and I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm giving him the, I'm giving him the eyeball going, yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, what the f- <laughs> is that? <laughs> so I just, you know, so quick cross-referencing, I kind of went, I went, okay, so Texas Double Shuffle. So that must be like a Mel Lewis shuffle. Fat <laughs> Jones, Mel Lewis, big band. You know, uh, advanced techniques for the modern drummer type shuffle yeah. thing, you know. <laughs> I said, sure, we started playing this. So I started playing a double shuffle, and Roscoe just turns around, starts smiling, and giving me the vote of confidence. And, uh, you got and it. I believe, I believe Robin turned around and started smiling, too, and I went, and I just kind of went, yeah, Texas double shuffle. You know? <laughs> Chances are they, I, they made it up. Said, what the hell is a Texas double shuffle? I said, it must be this. So <laughs> then I went, okay. Everybody started smiling. So, And then they called me back. And then and then uh, before you know it, you know, I'm I'm touring with Robin. It's first, uh first solo tour. And then later on, we became the Blue Line. Right. Trio. Well, that's great. Well, uh, the the Blue Line, uh, Robin, you know, you guys uh, released an album in '92 called it was the self titled Robin Ford and the and the Blue Line, and then yeah, uh, this yeah. debut album and your second album, uh, Mystic Mile, both of those, you know, garnered some Grammy nominations, and uh, yeah, and then I yeah. think also that from that first album, the track started up, that that song landed on the soundtrack for the movie The Firm, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. You know, I mean, you can hardly hear it, but it's there, you know? <laughs> yeah. But hell, you know. That's cool, though. You get, you get those special payment fund checks. Yep, that's true. That's true. You know? <laughs> well, and, and it's uh, great. You know, it's nice when it gets placed like that, you know? And so uh, I'm really proud of that 
I mean, all the all the stuff that we did with Robin, you know, because I mean, we everybody contributed to it, you know. I mean, yeah, in one way or the other. Of course, Robin wrote all the songs, and you know, I really. I really like that album you guys put out in 95 called A Handful of Blues, and uh, it seemed to have kind of a different vibe to it than the, the first two albums. It's uh, a little bit raw, and we yeah. it's the first time we had a, a, a producer, Danny Korchmar. Oh, really? It, was, it, was, it went really quick, which was nice, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I like to do things like, you know, okay, we got that, okay, next, okay, yeah, good, we got that, okay, cool, you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Instead of labor or laboring over something. And then Danny was really cool with that, you know? And, you know, because, uh, you know, and you kind of have a guy to save save you from yourself, you know. Like, let's, let's do another one, you know. But, no, that's good. That's a good one, you know. Yeah. Keep that one, you know. But uh, but also Robin had a big hand in that record, too, which was really great, you yeah. know. I mean, well, he had a hand, of course, he had a hand in all those records. But I think just the combined efforts, you know, it was it was really nice. And, yeah. And it was going in a different direction, which was which you should, which you should do, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the band should grow into, yeah. you know. I mean, you should be doing the same thing all the time, you know. Yeah. So. Well, hey, um, Tom, we've we just we got really a, proud of that that record, that recording. Oh, it was fantastic. Hey, we've just got a few more questions for you, and I think Eddie's going to throw the next one to you. Yeah. Okay. You know, back in back in 2004, you played a really cool project. It was called uh, A Guitar Supreme, the Giant Steps and Fusion gu- um, Guitar. Oh, yeah. And really neat stuff. It was a bunch of a compilation of fusion uh, arrangements of, of classic uh, Coltrane tunes. And right. uh, it included guys like Jeff Richmond, you know, Luke and, uh, you know, Jeff right. Howard, Mike Stern. Tell us about this, this project. It's, it's a really neat project. You know, it happened so quickly. Just Jeff basically called and... I said, we're going to do this. Uh, and I went, great. And it was pretty simple, you know. You just showed up and we played, and that was that. <laughs> I was thinking, give you more on it, you know. Nice and smooth, really. Sometimes, you know, the best stuff comes out when it's that way, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of thought on Jeff's part, but, you know, all I had to do was walk in and play, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and sometimes that's the best. That's always the best way. Just walk in and play, yep. and leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that the same way it was? Is that the same way it was with, uh, you know, Jazz for Japan? That was, I mean, you got had a bunch of heavy hitters there too, you know? Well, that was just, you know, um, they called me, and I just went, sure, I'd love to do it. It was basically, you know, who was around, and then they just, they just would put, they would put the bands together while you were there. Gotcha. You know? And mm-hmm. so, I think we did one take of that, and that was fine, you know? Yeah, that came out back in 2011, and uh, the track that you played on was uh, a track called uh, Cold Duck Time, and that had uh, Keiko Matsui right. and David Page. Both of those uh, artists were have been on our show before, and, of course, Boney James and Ricky Minor were on that as yeah, well. Yeah, Ricky Minor's great, man. Yeah. Boney James sounded great. You know, I mean, it's the first time I, I – mean, well, actually, the second time I met Boney James. I mean, I, I – um, and Keiko was in that band that I told you about with Roscoe and – Oh, really? And uh, really? Russell – and uh, myself and, and Robin. She's great. You know, the, the Kazumatsui uh, project. Oh, okay. All right. And, uh, and that was for Keiko. Oh, okay. In the band that she was in. Mm-hmm. Before she became Keiko Matsui. You okay. Know? She's solid. Well, she was always Keiko Matsui. But I mean, <laughs> you know. Hey, well, Tom, let's uh, take another break and let's check out this track from the Jazz for Japan album that was released back in 2011. And again, this is the track called Cold Duck Time 
featuring today's guest, Tom Brechtlein, on Inside Music Cast.
Hey, the, the last time I caught you in a live performance was way back in 2010 when you were on the road with Kenny Loggins. And in fact, one of our correspondents here at Inside Music Cast, uh, Scott Sheriff, was on that tour as well. And, and uh, Kenny's been a guest on the show a couple of times. And I was curious, mm. you know, how, how often you initially hooked up with him and, and do you tour with him often? Well, uh, yeah, I've been touring with him last, I've been working with him for the last eight years. Uh-huh. Well, what happened was um, basically I got a call from C.J. Powell, who's Kenny's production manager. Uh-huh. And we worked together with Natalie Cole. Okay. And uh, for for about a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met CJ. And uh he uh he called me up and he said, "Listen, you know, they're always looking for subs, you know, on on um Kenny's band, you know." Mm-hmm. So, I went down there and I, I auditioned for Kenny. You know, I I I had just gotten off I was playing with Chick again. Mm-hmm. In 2004, 2004, 2006. And so I had just gotten off the road with that. But no, we were still doing, I think we were wind, starting to wind down a little bit. And um, so I was always looking for something to do. So I, you know, I just, I sounded CJ. And he says, well, this, you know, why don't you come down and, and, and play for Kenny? So I said, sure. And it was for a sub, it was for a sub spot, you know, right. but you know, you foot in the door, you know, so I played and, uh, he liked what I did. And then he hired me that night, you know, to do subs right? and yeah. I'd still be doing stuff, you know, uh, occasionally, you know, I might've still been working with Robin at the time. I'm not sure from time to time, yep. you know, not, not exclusively. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, he decided to just use me for this summer tour, I think in 2008 and that was it. Yeah. You know? Well, just kind of uh, kind of hinging on that same thought, you know, you've been through so you know the many facets and changes in the music business throughout you know your career. And, and granted, you know, when you started off in the music business, it was you know such a fantastic time for studio musicians, and you you know you've weathered that storm, and you're still in demand. But uh, tell us a little bit about the business of music and how you've adapted to all of the changes you know over the past several decades. Well, you know, I do the same thing, what I just told you, just yep. so people know you're there. Are we talking about, like, studio work and all that? Yeah, yeah, because it's obviously a different game than it was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Well, I'm on the road more than I am yeah. recording these days. Yeah, that's know? true. Mm-hmm. And then also you teach a little bit more, you know. I mean, you do what you have to do to, you know, keep going, you know. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I've just learned how to adapt, I guess, in my own way, you know, and still am because it's always changing, you know. Yeah. But like I said, the mainstay is just, I hope this answers your question. Because no, I it does. It does. Touring seems to be, you know, the place where uh, session drummers or se- any any session musician can, yeah. you know, well, make you their career at this point. know that you're there. Yeah. You know, you let people know that you're there and, you know, and, you do, and every time you show up, you do a good job no matter what kind of music or mm-hmm. what kind of gig it is you yeah know? exactly hey tom this is uh you know we're a little over halfway of 2015 tell us what you've done uh in in touring or projects in the first half and what do you have uh lined up for the for the rest of the year well i mean it's, it's pretty much uh kenny and and, and teaching mm-hmm. you know uh i love to teach this is a new thing that it's come around nice and uh uh I just did a thing on Long Island for about a week, you know, a guy that I gave a lesson to made me aware of uh, being, um, of, of, of uh, some guys wanted to take lessons with me. 
So I said, well, listen, I got some frequent flyer miles. You know, I did this at the beginning of July. I said, I got some free time. I said, why don't we uh, put something together and if we can find a venue to do it in, you know? Yeah. And if we could get at least eight to ten guys, I'm cool. So th- this fellow's name is Bill Donnelly, great drummer, really great guy. And he basically got the Long Island Drum Center and the Suffolk County Music Center together. and Cool. Pulled it together within like two and a half weeks. It was unbelievable. Wow. So I went down there. <laughs> I had a blast. So now we're going to yeah. start this thing. Right now, the working title is the Long Island Drum Club, you know? Okay. And just make it into an event and a hang every year. That's cool. You know? Yeah. You could take lessons, you know, and uh, do some, you know, uh, master classes and stuff, you know? Uh-huh. And then... We're talking about maybe at the end of the week or however many days it's going to be, that I just have a humongous jam session where everybody gets to play, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to next year to see what we can do, you know? Very cool. And, uh, you know, playing around town, playing projects that, you know, get called for here. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, of that also uh, compiling stuff, that I've given to students and have just given away, you see how a, a guy plays and you go, oh, well, check this out. You write it out. Check this out. But over the years, I've always given it away and then I go, what did I write? I forgot, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this one student I have, I said, listen, uh, why don't you photocopy and, uh, you know, send me some emails of the stuff that I, that I gave you. So now I'm compiling all the information. <laughs> Yeah. And I'd like to I'd like to write a little method book, you know. Oh yeah, that would be cool. Which is really, which would really be cool. Yeah. You know what? I copied all that stuff and gave it to the students that week, and I learned a lot from it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. teaching them, I learned really. You really, it, it's true. You learn a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot for, about yourself when you teach. People. You re- you really do, isn't it the truth? Yeah. So I'm getting into it now, you know. Cool. So I'm. So I'm writing away here, you know. Excellent. Making sure that the groove is always intact and the musicality is yeah. up there. <laughs> no, without no, getting no. too technical, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, Tom, this has been a, a, a really great chat. Uh, we've, we've kept you a long time and we've gotten a lot of great stories and uh, a lot of great information. We really Good appreciate stuff. everything you've, uh, you've shared yeah, with I us today. I hope I don't sound like a meandering all over the place. <laughs> no, I, no, no, it's all fun. Of a, it's all just a fun chat. You no, know? It's, it's great. We love to hear it. It's it. going, uh, and then But I had a really great time, guys. I hope you could use the stuff we talked about. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll keep in touch and we'll be sure to share um, you know, updates with our, our listeners about what you're up to. Great. All right. Great. Thanks again, Tom. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Tom Brechtlein for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Bye, you Chevrolet. Bye, you Chevrolet. Bye, you Chevrolet. Just do something for you. Just do something for you.